There's the war you can see, and then there's the one you can't. At least, not until it's too late. This week on Download This Show, the ongoing violence in Ukraine is showing us the future of war. Attacks on infrastructure, social media, misinformation. But just how different is it from conflicts in the past, and what are we learning that we need to prepare for next? This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to a special Cyber War episode of Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new special themed episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, author of Seriously Risky Business Cybersecurity Newsletter, which you can find on Substack, and senior fellow at Aspie, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Tom Uren. Welcome to Download This Show. G'day, Mark. And Catherine Manstead, senior fellow in the practice of national security at the ANU National Security College and the director of cyber intelligence at CyberCX. Catherine, welcome to the show. Mark, fantastic to be here. So I guess we come together under something of a cloud at the moment. Um, in my case, literally a cloud because it's raining cats and dogs where I am at the moment. Apologies if you can hear the rain in the background. We're seeing uh, really, really serious news coming from Ukraine at the moment uh, and have been for some time now. But in addition to the physical and military impacts on that country, there's also a technological one and it, it, it opens up a wider conversation around uh, how technology is used in conflicts. And that's why we've brought Catherine and Tom t- together today. So uh, Tom, I'll start with you. I mean, as we're seeing on the news every night cities under air attack. But what's happening in a digital space? We've seen several of Ukraine's banks and government departments crash in the last few weeks. Can you give me a sense of of what's going on in the digital environment? Yeah, so I think that what's happening is actually both more and less than I expected at the beginning. Uh, So one possibility is that the Russians might have used quite disruptive attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure. So in the past, they've actually disrupted Ukrainian electricity networks. At the the very beginning of the invasion and in the weeks leading up to it, they used several wipers. So wipers are just pieces of malware that try and basically destroy computers so they can't be used. But they've left the communications network basically alone, as far as I can tell. And they've also not disrupted internet access. But what has happened is that there's been a whole lot of, I guess, interested bystanders who've got involved. So the Ukrainian digital minister asked for volunteers to launch cyber attacks against Russian infrastructure. Um, And so they actually came up with a target list that they've distributed on Telegram. And so there's been a whole lot of volunteers who have launched various kinds of I wouldn't call them destructive, but just annoying attacks. So um, what are called DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, which basically tries to overwhelm a website against things like the Russian banks, uh, state media, uh, some of the government ministry websites. So those are all annoyances. Um, Probably one of the more interesting ones is that they've also at times hacked Russian state media to display casualty counts. And that's probably the only one that I think might have actually any slight, make any slight difference in the war overall. Mm. Catherine, out of the, the different forms of attack that are happening on, I guess, both sides at the moment, what, what stood out to you as being the most interesting, the one that you didn't necessarily expect? So I think there are a couple of aspects here, and I might start with the state-based Russian cyber attacks that Tom was mentioning. Uh, 
Yeah, we have seen some destructive malware used by Russia and also Russia using a range of website defacement and distributed denial of service tools as well. So it's not just the hacktivists using those tools. I think it's very fair to say that this was a cyber war before it was a kinetic war, before invasion began. I would agree with Tom that the intensity of Russian destructive attacks has not been perhaps as high as we would expect and certainly not as high uh, or as destructive as we have seen in the past from Russia uh, against Ukraine, uh, famously the NotPetya wiper uh, in 2017 caused significant damage to Ukraine, but also spilled over and spread around the world and, and caused billions of dollar, dollars of damage to the global economy. I think, though, what stands out to me, we have seen some hacktivists around the edges, but ultimately, as Tom said, I would view them more as nuisance, the equivalent of a digital graffiti rather than a game changer. To me, what is most interesting is two things. One is the fact that Russian cyber criminals, Russian linked cyber criminals who have been attacking the West. They've been targeting Australian organisations uh, and many other organisations for years have expressed support and solidarity for Russia. And we know these groups are very sophisticated. We know they're capable of uh, ransomware attacks where uh, you shut down an organisation's ability to operate and demand a, a financial payment. Uh, they might start doing that for political purpose, not financial gain. Uh, and to have them, we've known for a while that they've got a pretty cosy relationship with Russian intelligence and law enforcement. But to have them in the fray, I think, is potentially where we might see some serious capability deployed. The other thing, though, is, yeah, we've seen hacktivists in solidarity, but really more of a nuisance and sometimes hacktivists uh, overstate how effective they are. But it's the role of the big tech platforms that stood out for me. That's the Googles, the Facebooks of the world that are depriving Russian soldiers on the ground in Ukraine of situational awareness by, for instance, taking Google live traffic down. It's the big platforms that have the power to de-platform Russian state media across Europe so those propagandistic messages from Russia can't get out. That's where I think you see the big effect because the platforms control the gates of the internet uh, and that is a potentially powerful informational and cyber uh, advantage for Ukraine. I just want to pick up on something you said there, Catherine, that I think will be, I guess, a new concept for people. You mentioned a, a wiper before. The one you're referring to from a few years ago, could, could you go back and explain a little bit about what it was intended to do and how it worked and how effective it was, Catherine? Well, what it was intended to do and what it ended up doing might be different things, Mark. So Russia has used Ukraine as a test bed for cyber warfare for years. And in 2017, they used a particular piece of malware, which the security community called NotPetya, uh, which was intended to cause a really disruptive effect to Ukraine. All a wiper is, is a particular uh, piece of malware that uh, basically BRICS system. So it's it's destructive, as opposed to some of these other tools we're talking about, like a distributed denial of service or a website defacement. They're temporary things. They get in the way of the availability of your access to your networks or your services. But a wiper uh, BRICS a, a system and causes a destructive effect. And it is um, potentially not only destructive and, and disruptive, but it costs a lot of money to remediate. Uh, what happened in the case of NotPetya, and this is why it's 
of concern for organisations around the world, not just those immediately involved in this conflict, is it got off the leash. Russia is known as being a reckless cyber power. It doesn't really care about collateral damage. Ukraine was the immediate target. Not Petya spread. It was a worm. It went around the global internet. Uh, it hit Maersk, the global shipping company, for instance, causing billions of dollars of damage uh, to the global economy, uh, several hundred million uh, worth of uh, damage to Maersk, one particular organisation. And it even got back into Russia uh, because, of course, the internet is fundamentally borderless. And once these things start to spread, the damage can go far and wide. It came to Australia as well. Uh, but due to a quirk of of our time zone, really, we weren't nearly as badly as affected as other organisations. And that's the real concern here, that Russia will step up its use of these destructive wipers or other tools. Uh, and that's really concerning for those on the ground in Ukraine, but also concerning for organisations around the world uh, that are currently all on high cyber alert because of Russia's reckless cyber form. That's really interesting. Tom, something you also mentioned earlier that I was fascinated, at least at the time of recording, the, the communications network hasn't been completely uh, dismembered. Why? Like what, you would imagine that if you're invading a country, one of the first things you would do would be to limit communications and I would imagine that a, a communications network would be one of the things you would want to target. This is, says perhaps more about my lack of understanding of how to invade a country than anything else. Why hasn't, at least at the time of recording, that particular piece of infrastructure been taken on? Yeah, so that's it's an interesting question. So one possibility is just that the Russians themselves need the communications network to talk. So the the Ukrainian digital ministry said that they they know that the Russians are using mobile phones to communicate, which is just like the dumbest thing ever because... Uh, the Ukrainians control the mobile phone network so they could listen in to everything that the Russians are sending. What they've done instead is actually kick all Russian phones off the network and apparently the the Russian troops, at least according to the digital ministry, uh, are seizing civilian phones and using them to communicate. Um, so there's other reports that Russians are just using civilian radios to talk as well. So it could be that they realise that if they took down... A tele, the telecommunications network, they'd have no way to organise themselves. That's that's the hypothesis I'm running with now, because to me, it would make sense to stop telecommunications. The other possibility is that they believed their own propaganda, that the Ukrainians would welcome them with open arms, and it would be just a, a kind of cakewalk. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of bizarre. It doesn't really make any sense to me. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. This week we are focusing on the world of cyber warfare. Our guest this week, Catherine Manstead from CyberCX, also from the ANU, and Tom Uren from Risky Biz and a senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And Tom, I did want to talk about information warfare because there was a narrative that Russia was trying to create in the lead up to war, which I guess wasn't as obvious to people outside of Russia who, or certainly people who weren't following the story intensely. What was the narrative that Russia was trying to create about Ukraine in the lead up to war? And how did they go about building up that narrative, at least within Russia? Uh, yeah, so they've, uh, Putin's talked about uh, protecting Russian people. And also he's talked about Ukraine being run as kind of a Nazi state. Uh, both of those things don't seem to be 
have any basis in reality. Um, and they were also trying to manufacture a reason for invasion. Uh, so prior to actual hostilities kicking off, the US government would regularly talk about the intelligence they had about the intentions of the Russian state. Um, so it's, it's a great example of what people call pre-bunking, where they get out in front of a story that they think will be used against them. And so that really, in my view, diminished the, the sort of ability for Russia to try and, I, I guess, frame the conflict. Um, the other thing that's happened is that the Ukrainians themselves have been very, very good at portraying themselves as the as the righteous underdog, I suppose. And I think part of that is because it's true, but also partly it's because they've been just very effective at telling the right stories. Uh, so, for example, there's the, the story of uh, the Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island who, who told the Russian warship to go, to go F itself and, and subsequently were killed. It appears that that story's not true. The soldiers survived. But the emotional impact that kind of story has is really powerful for, for rallying support, both internally in Ukraine, um, but also more broadly across Europe, which I think is, is the biggest asset the Ukrainians have is support from Europe and Western countries like the US and even Australia. Catherine, I'm mindful of the fact that it, it looks like Ukraine is winning, I guess, the information and the, the PR war, but because obviously we're outside of the, the conflict. Who do you think is winning the, the information war? Look, it's hard to, to, to choose winners and losers at such an early and febrile state of the conflict. But what I would say is from what we've seen so far, uh, pretty much the explosion of the myth that Russia uh, is the dominant player in global information warfare. There has been a perception that Russia is really good at the information game. It's a master of disinformation, a master of propaganda and deception, and the US and its allies and partners and the West in general struggle in this domain. And so far, everything that I have seen has suggested that uh, the US, its allies, partners and Ukraine are are really uh, on the front foot in terms of the information sphere. And I think to Tom's point as well, this conflict is perhaps demonstrating the limits of propaganda and spin when you do not have the moral high ground on your side. There's only so far that deception and lies can get you. Um, but what's been really interesting to me, uh, right from the beginning of this conflict, uh, Tom mentioned uh, Vladimir Putin's ploy. He was going to use false flags. He was bringing a deception operation online. And that was very effectively defamed by intelligence sharing from the US, a form of, of information warfare, as it were, putting out intelligence to defang a deception operation. And then what we've seen consistently is Ukraine, uh, as Tom said, uh, dominating the social media narrative, telling stories of individual heroism, uh, portraying the Russians uh, as bumbling in some cases and as war criminals in other cases. Um, but also what's striking to me is not just the information that's out there, the intelligence and the stories, but the information that is not out there. And Ukraine has been far more effective at getting its people to stay off social media, what we'd call in, I guess, the military realm, preserving OPSEC, operational security, by not revealing tactical information. 
Uh, while there are reports of invading Russian soldiers uh, posting uh, happy snaps on social media, there are even some reports, whether they're true or not, of, of local uh, of Russian soldiers trying to match with locals on Tinder. Um, so Ukraine has absolutely um, dominated, I would say, both in terms of that strategic information warfare, working with the US on intel on intel sharing, the narrative piece. Um, portraying themselves as the good guys, uh, and also the operational security piece, making sure that the information that shouldn't be online is not online. Wait a minute. The Russian soldiers are trying to match with locals on Tinder. So says social media. Of course, it's hard in the in the fog and friction of war to know whether or not that's just another piece of, of, of Ukrainian trash talking the Russians to say, look how incompetent these are. But I mean, ultimately, many of the Russians are young recruits. Apparently, many did not realise that they were bound for the front, which is, of course, part of the tragedy that makes up what we're dealing with. But I think it's fair to say that uh, the Russian soldiers have not proven themselves very good at uh, keeping themselves off all forms of social media. What, how do you think the media should respond to misinformation? Like you, you very carefully caveated the, the Tinder point, but, but how do you think the media should be approaching this onslaught of, of uh, uh, dodgy information? I think the media is, uh, as, as you might say, Mark, kind of the, puts the first draft of history out. And we know that's not always going to be correct um, because it is that first draft and things will emerge over time. So I would say what's really important is corroboration. If you see something in one place, of course, it's important to kind of try and corroborate that. But of course, again, we're also dealing with a war. And in the fog and friction of war, sometimes it is difficult to know uh, truth from misinformation and, and misinformation doesn't need to have been spread with deliberate malice. It, it could just be a rumour that's gone out of hand. And so I think corroboration is important. Caveats are also important where it's not clear what is or isn't the right outcome. And ultimately, um, reserving the right to change as the facts change. And I think that's where that important part of the first draft of history comes out. It would be sad if we uh, censored information um, out of concern that it might not be corroborated but on all four corners of it because we are dealing with a contested information environment, a warfare situation. So I guess it's there, there needs to be a level of responsibility there, absolutely, and co- corroboration, but also a level of, I suppose, um, caveating and, and trust with readers um, that we are uh, in this space when we're talking about this, making best efforts to corroborate and understand, uh, but not um, depriving uh, readers and, and viewers and listeners of information just because we don't have it perfectly right yet. I was just going to say contested information environment is my new favourite euphemism for the entire internet, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Uh, one of the other things that's happened in the last couple of weeks, Catherine, is that uh, the hacktivist collective, amorphous collective known as Anonymous, have declared cyber war on Russia. What does that actually mean? Like, how, how seriously should something like that be taken, Catherine? Oh, look, I think it's a, a, a drop in the ocean in terms of a broader picture of various groups in the West and in Ukraine and indeed in Russia uh, expressing solidarity with the Ukrainian people and, and trying to do their little bit to help. Anonymous is a loose hacking collective on the internet. So far, uh, they, like other hacktivist groups, have made a point, I suppose. They've they've been a little bit of a nuisance in terms of um, potentially taking down some Russian websites or, or adding 
providing some defacement to Russian websites. Uh, in one case, a news website was kicked offline. But as we were talking about before, a lot of these types of hacktivist attacks are temporarily um, disruptive only. They're a nuisance. They're a bit like graffiti. They're expressing a point. Uh, but I don't think they're necessarily going to be game changers. One of the areas of hacktivism to watch is a, is a trend towards what you could call leaktivism, uh, which is taking sensitive information from a group and exposing it online. That can have a little bit more impact if you think about exposing uh Defense, sensitive defence information, and there's some suggestion that a hacktivist has done that uh, against a Belarusian defence industry outfit. Um, there's another uh, kind of war of the hackers where one of Russia's most powerful cyber criminal groups, Conti, has come out and said that they would support Russia and hit Western targets that uh, don't support Russia, including their critical infrastructure. That's something to be worried about. But um, a, gr a group member of Conti has leaked uh, online, a, a Ukrainian group member allegedly has leaked online as part of this trend of leaktivism a range of information about Conti to try and make it a little bit harder for Conti to operate. So yes, hacktivists are entering the fray and yes, I think it's part of a broader pattern we see of organisations, whether it's Eurovision or different soccer um, outfits in the UK, etc. Uh, F1 um, saying to Russia that what they're doing is not on, but I don't think it will necessarily tilt anything in the balance of this conflict. Maybe not in the balance of the conflict, but Tom, does it have an impact on how Russian people are viewing the conflict? Because we talked a little bit earlier about how it was messaged before the, the, the invasion itself started happening. Is there a sense that some of these things happening in, across Europe and, and outside the wider world are tweaking perceptions within Russia? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting hacks that's occurred is some activists altered some Russian state media websites to have casualty numbers of Russian soldiers lost in the conflict. And there's definitely people in Russia who are against the conflict. The Russian government is trying to prevent those kinds of messages getting out on social media. So that kind of activism can encourage people. I don't think that Putin himself generally listens to people very much. Um, so probably the pressure... Uh, so in that sense, I think the kind of information space in Russia is not very fruitful. But what is fruitful is, I think, some of the broader actions that have taken place that will really hit Russian financial interests and some of the oligarchs that are no doubt important for his support base. Um, so again, a whole lot of the technological and information space stuff is... Um, it, it kind of varies from being a nuisance to, I think in the case of Europe, European support is really crucial for Ukraine, but much of that technological sort of confrontation gets, uh, is just not exactly irrelevant, but not as significant as some of the financial and military support that's being offered. That being said, we are seeing some censoring of social media, Tom. What exactly is being suppressed? Uh, in Russia, it's mostly the anti-war sentiment um, amongst Russian people. So there's there's, um, I believe there've been protests and there's certainly been actions online and they're just being suppressed. Putin doesn't want other people to see them. One thing I was curious about, 
within all of this is is where is Australia? Like, what what is Australia's role, or what can Australia be doing in a conflict like this? And and is it doing enough? Should it be doing more? Should it be doing less? Catherine, well, oh, that's a very open ended question, but I'll let you start. I think Australia has uh, been uh, a supporter of Ukraine and. NATO's position on this from the start and has really increased in a surprisingly short amount of time uh, the support that it is providing. So we've heard um, just in the last couple of days uh, the Prime Minister talk about uh, actual munitions. And in the cyber realm and in the information realm where we're we're talking about, um, Australia has absolutely um, been on the front foot, as have a number of countries, in a really strong diplomatic response. We're also providing um, cyber training or cyber assistance to to Ukraine. But I don't think we should overestimate or overemphasise that. This isn't a case of Australia packaging up and shipping off some cyber weapons. This is more in the realms of diplomacy and training. And I think our level of support is right and proper. We should and can have democratic solidarity with Ukraine, but ultimately uh, Australia is not a member of NATO and uh, our immediate area of interest and our the most important place for Australia is the Indo-Pacific, uh, is our region, and we are, you know, we're a big player there. Uh, but in terms of this conflict, I think we've got the response uh, very commensurate uh, with with the level of, of support that we can and should offer. Mm. Catherine, this is a, an unusual conflict that we're watching unfold here. What can we learn about the future of, of cyber warfare from what is currently playing out in Ukraine? Are there, are there lessons that we can start to take from it? Oh, absolutely. And there's probably some some meta uh, strategic lessons and then there are some, some immediate lessons for Australia. I think one thing that this has really driven home, I think, for cyber watchers is something that a lot of us talk about, which is that, you know, I think sometimes there can be the perception that cyber is a game changer, that that cyber will be the decisive battlefront of the future. And in many respects, it is just one part of the story and in often not the most important part. And I think that's been something that we've seen so far play out in this conflict. Same with the informational aspects so that, you know, if you're talking about conflict, you've got the material um, aspects of a conflict and the moral aspects of a conflict and that's where your information really uh, comes in as well as intelligence for situational awareness etc all of that has played an incredibly important role in this conflict but again it's not the decisive it's not the only part and we're seeing that uh, hard power that kinetic power uh, matters a lot and that that is the universal truth in history since antiquity and probably won't go away anytime soon I do think, though, for Australia, uh, there is a lot we can do in this immediate conflict, as I mentioned before, but what we can and should be doing as well is taking lessons for our own region and imagining what a cyber conflict or what a territorial conflict like this would and could look like in our region and how we prepare for it. And that pains me to talk about that because it would be lovely if we lived in a peaceful uh, international community, but Sadly, we do not. So thinking about the lessons that Australia can learn, thinking about what lessons China and the Chinese Communist Party might be drawing from Russia, Ukraine, in respect of China's territorial claims over Taiwan. Absolutely. I'm sure that is going on right now in the Australian corridors of power. And it is absolutely something we, as all 
uh, citizens should be thinking about as well. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, thank you both so much. Tom Uren uh, is the author of the Seriously Risky Business Cybersecurity Newsletter, which you can find on Substack, and also a senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And Catherine Manstead is a senior fellow in the Practice of National Security at the ANU National Security College and Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.